Hey Slavic Connection listeners, this is Lara. We have a fantastic episode for you today. We had Dr. Evgenia Wilkins, a professor here at the Slavic department at UT, come in and talk to us a little bit about the Maymester in Siberia program that's happening next year. We covered a whole range of topics, including just Lake Baikal itself, uh, interdisciplinary learning, uh, environmental studies. Um, so go ahead and take a listen. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. All right, let's start rolling. Okay. Good morning. Uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Wilkins. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, you just mentioned that this is your very first time being on a podcast. Exactly. Um, Hi, Lara. Uh, thank Hello. you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, so we actually have you in here this morning to talk a little bit about one of UT's kind of study abroad hybrid course programs called uh, Maymester. But let's talk a little bit about you first. Hi, I'm from St. Petersburg, Russia. I've been here in the States for about 10 years. I did my graduate degree uh, here at UT okay. at the Department of Slavic and Eurasian Studies, where I currently teach Russian. When I finished my coursework here at UT, I moved to DC and lived there for a few years and then uh, moved to Portland, Oregon and um, spent there about three and a half years. This was really the place that got me interested in environmental uh, theme because as as you know, they're a lot bigger on everything environmental Sure, yeah. and just one of the greenest states here in the, in, in the US. There I had a pleasure and honor to teach the course in Russian on sustainability, which was um, really, I learned a lot um, about the topic. And we also put together a video with students um, at the end of the course about the green practices that uh, exist in Portland, Oregon. Oh, okay. And then ultimately you got pulled back to Texas. Exactly. And, uh, and then at some point, um, UT said, well, either you come back or we, we don't want to keep you anymore. <laughs> and so I figured I, I wanted to have my degree. And um, yes, I, I uh, actually, uh, my family at the time, and I came back and uh, I defended my dissertation eventually. Just looking at what you're teaching now, you're teaching intensive Russian, second year Russian. Um, but this Maymester is actually a little bit more, as you also brought up, environmental studies. Um, so what kind of got you interested in both? They're a little bit opposing topics, not opposing necessarily, but different. Um, so last year, um, I taught a course on Soviet history and culture at Huston Tillotson University. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one big uh, prep for this course. And also... I think going with the students for the first time overseas, um, and it happened to be Irkutsk, mm-hmm. uh, which is an hour away from Lake Baikal, uh, made me think a lot more about how our two countries manage environment, uh, treat nature, and work towards sustainable or not so sustainable solutions. And uh, yeah, I think I think those two pieces kind of came together for me in wanting to put together a proposal for um, environmental master for UT. And also, if you look at the uh, UT study abroad map, mm-hmm. uh, Russia is not very well represented. Sure, yeah. Um, outside of Moscow Plus, there mm-hmm. aren't programs that take students to Siberia. So, all right, well, let's get a little bit into, you know, details on Maymester. It's environmental studies, history and culture on the shores of Lake Baikal. Uh, so why Lake Baikal? 
Many reasons. I think I should start with uh, the fact that it's a, uh, it has been uh, the World Heritage Site mm-hmm. for a while. And while being there, I noticed that there aren't many Americans who um, get a chance to visit that beautiful lake. The, there's, there's a whole field of studies called bycology, and okay. uh, they've got Limnological Institute, uh, which also de- completely like, dedicated to Baikal entirely. Also, outside of uh, just the biological diversity that exists there and nowhere else in the world, they are very proud of their endemics. Mm-hmm. You probably know that this is the deepest freshwater body mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah, I have my, I have my facts here. Uh, <laughs> 5,000 feet, 1,600 meters. There you go. Yep, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> and it, it stay, stays cool throughout the summer. It, it just never warms up to the temperature where it's comfortable swimming or anything like that outside of like just one shore over there. Um, but also, why Lake Baikal? That's a good question, you know, but culturally, historically, and... Um, Biological diversity, I guess, make it all, uh, for me, and um, such a huge magnet uh, sure. that needs to, uh, that people need to know about and need to study, and especially uh, American students who are in college, it's their best time to go overseas, mm-hmm. and plus it is in Russia, the country that is fairly difficult to travel to sure, um, as an American now. and by yourself, so mm-hmm. I think it's a good way not only... Uh, to learn some facts about environmental life in Russia, but also just to see what it's like to be in a very different environment where people don't necessarily see many Americans. Yeah, no, I get that, uh, especially up of like in Irkutsk. Like, I'm sure that's not compared to going to Moscow. I'm sure that's a little bit harder to get to. And I think, especially with study abroad, there are, I noticed that it's open to any discipline here at UT, any student can go, which I think is fantastic because as someone who also went and studied abroad, I found it insanely enriching and important to go and experience another culture and be immersed in it rather than just going on vacation. Like you're there, you have to live in this environment and you know, to to be able to go and experience this, even for just such a short amount of time, right. I think is is really really uh, fantastic. And so, especially when you're you know kind of integrating not only just language study but also environmental study. Um, so so, how much Russian do you need to know to kind of survive on this May semester? That's a great question. Uh, because for for our language students, uh, we also we always say, well, that's a great place to go study Russian language because mm-hmm. there aren't many people who will be jumping at you and um, trying to practice their English. Sure. Um, however, because Irkutsk is one of the big hubs on the Trans-Siberian uh, Railroad, uh, where tourists make a lot of stop. I mean, make frequent stops. There is there is enough people in the city who are proficient in English, and if somebody, for example, gets lost on the street. It's not going to be an issue for them to find an English speaker. Mm-hmm. We will be offering four hours of Russian each week for students, and also we will be doing some prep before going in the course of the spring semester. Students will be equipped with uh, some survival phrases, some tools, for sure, exactly, <laughs> to hop on um, a bus and you know to purchase something or to inquire about what, what kind of coffee they want. Right, so they'll be able to say some some things like that. Overall. I think, generally speaking, in Russia, in uh, larger cities, and Irkutsk is one of the larger cities, people are proficient in, uh, young people are proficient mm-hmm. in English, and they're 
very open to using it. Yeah, of course. And I'm sure, like, as, if they see Americans, it's just, like, the first thought on their mind is, like, we're going to speak English, not Russian, of course. Yeah, uh, that's that's what we um, sort of always um, try to help our students and say, well, be very proactive about using Russian uh, and make sure to put your foot forward and say, well, let's speak Russian now. Yeah. Uh, but also... Uh, our program offers a support of peer tutors, which are uh, young people who study at the Irkutsk State University, which oh, will be yeah. our sort of home institution there. Mm-hmm. And they will be fully capable and proficient in English. Well, that's and fantastic. We'll be helping with some logistics, some uh, travels, and everyday stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of levels of like immersion and integration there. Like not only are you in the culture, you have students in in your university that are actively helping you. Right, right. And I, I think um, a good amount, a good number of students uh, that I've talked to uh, by now already have some Russian, uh, which means they will be probably taking more advanced courses and mm-hmm. will be able to take advantage of being immersed in the Russian yeah um, environment. Yeah, but one of the things also that now that we're talking a little bit more about how wild like Baikal, um, also I think not not Siberia, not entire the entire Siberia, but like that little island in Siberia, Irkutsk and the area near Baikal, I think they're particularly environmentally active. Mm-hmm. They're they're which stands out to me. Of course, they sort of witness this um, marvelous lake, right? That they live close by. Um, but still, there are a lot of active young people who are concerned and trying to take ac- action to protect the lake for future de- generations mm-hmm. and um, save the current bio- de- biodiversity. One of the places we will be visiting is Baikal Interactive Center. Mm-hmm. Wonderful Anna Agarodnikova works there, who knows everything about Baikal, about the places that surrounded, and she's very experienced in um, working with youth and uh, coming up with the board. They came up with a board game uh, to teach young young Russians wow, okay. um, about the importance and some aspects of Lake Baikal. And also, uh, they're trying to get everyone interested by coming up with English classes, free English classes for young for young Russians about ecology. So yeah. Wow, so they're doing it all, like just reaching out in any way, shape, or form. We have classes, we have board games. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. Um, so that that's one of the field trips. What are some other things that students kind of can expect to be doing to get involved with Lake Baikal and, and with the environment? We uh, go to the lake quite a bit. Um, I know the title of the program says On the Shores of Lake Baikal. We will be spending a significant time there and just out, out and about. One of the field trips that we take is building a Baikal Trail, which takes us about three and a half hours away from the city, um, and we're staying in the tents. And there's, there's this wonderful group, which is called uh, Baikal Trail Building. Mm-hmm. Uh, GBT, yeah, Great Baikal Trail Building. Okay. Uh, an organization which works with the help of volunteers, and volunteers usually come uh, for two weeks, a group of volunteers goes out there and um, they shove dirt, you know. And, <laughs> In the simplest <laughs> words, they move dirt around. Exactly. <laughs> and at the end of this process, you know, you get um, a mile of trail. And so uh, the trail is, is really meant for um, hikers and for people mm-hmm. who want to go camping um, eventually. And they've been working s- since 2000s. Uh, wow. Since 2000, yeah. Um, and they've, I think they've accomplished about 
500 miles so far, which is very impressive. That's significant, yeah. Uh, we will not be going for two weeks. We're <laughs> only going for um, two days and one night. Mm -hmm. But people find it very uh, rewarding to see the fruit of their labor appear. So, uh, you know, and sort of it stays there. So they can come next year and look at it and say, yeah, yeah, I built that. You know? <laughs> and would they can come back and bring their Russian that they learned? And Absolutely. One of the words that everyone learns, no matter what, is coming. Because <laughs> whenever, whenever you uh, dig um, and you know, move dirt around, there are lots of stones that mm -hmm. are in, in there, and you have to throw them in the water. And so whenever you do that, you're supposed to yell, coming. <laughs> um, yeah. Just a friendly little warning. Exactly. Um, so, so not only are they learning, they're also engaging with the community and helping out with the community. Um, because I assume kind of these, these trails were designed maybe to promote tourism as well, make it more accessible. Are there any other kind of opportunities that they're, that they're doing? We, we do have a lot of excursions, mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily um, helping the community. It's mm -hmm. more like learning about the community, sure. learning about the area. One of the great things that we do, we go uh, on a, we take a night train to Ulanude, which is the capital of Buryatia, and there we get we visit different religious bodies, I guess, mm -hmm. or uh, we we visit uh, Datsan, mm -hmm. which is a Buddhist um, temple, uh, not not really a temple, but like more of a complex, okay. uh, where currently um, they. It's, it's open for everyone, mm -hmm. and uh, we do lunch there, and uh, there's an excursion which sort of gets a little bit into the uh, Buddhism in Buryatia. We also go to Old Believers Village there, which is a community of, it's, it's a very mixed group of people, but it's mostly Poles and people who were exiled there in um, during Catherine the Great, mm -hmm. and wow. they, they walked all the way to Siberia. So they've got very interesting traditions because at the time there weren't any uh, medicine or vaccination. So they, for example, never share a plate with a guest. They only share plates. Uh, they, they only share um, cutlery within the family members because they, they're trying to keep it, you know, um, from any outside infections or sure. anything. So. It's something cultural. Um, I mean, that kind of brings to mind, it's like that might be a bit of like a culture shock to people. Um, what, you know, how do you expect to deal with that? What are some things that come up? Like, how do you go and process that with them like throughout the, because they're there for a couple of weeks. I'm sure they're, especially, this isn't even, you know, cosmopolitan Russia. This is up, exactly. up in Siberia. Yeah. You know, one of the things in the study abroad in general is that immersion is really highly valued, right? Yes. If you want to learn a language, if you want to learn a culture and acquire some degree of intercultural competence, uh, you should go to the country. But another important thing or aspect which is often gets uh, forgotten is the need to sit down and discuss the experiences. Yes. And assign a particular value and sort of understand what is the value behind them. Mm -hmm. So we do this weekly, I want to say community dinners, but they're not necessarily, like we sort of played with it a little bit last year and a year before, mm -hmm. where students get together and uh, we sort of share the experiences and we try to understand why things are happening the way they happen and to shift the attitude from, oh, this is different, oh, this is strange, 
to the attitude, oh, I see what's happening. Right. You know, I'm, I, understand, I understand why it's happening and also process a little bit on the other side. What would a uh, Russian think if they would see some of the things in American culture? Sure. So kind of opening up that space for discussion and um, reflection, I think, really helps people to get rid of the, not necessarily get rid of, but to dive deeper into, into the culture. Yeah, no, of course. Every, everyday culture, right? So there's this high culture, that literature, theater, and uh, there's this low culture, that um, everyday communication. Yeah. And uh, people will report that, oh, Russians are appear rude in the fir- in the, you know on the first encounter mm-hmm. because they don't smile a lot but then we talk about the role of smile and like who the smile is uh, appropriate for in the russian world and who it is not and so people are like oh i see okay that makes sense yeah and having these dinners they can talk about it they can you know exchange these stories and say oh i'm not the only one having you know exactly. this culture shock like we're all having it and processing it yeah that's sounds incredibly vital Hello, Slavic listeners. This is Katya. Today, I am joined by Michael Keel. Uh, he is a student here at the University of Texas at Austin. Michael, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, hello, my name is Michael. I'm a student at the University of Texas in the Department of Asian Studies. I study Japanese literature. Are you uh, an Austinite, a native Austinite? Uh, no, I was born in upstate New York, where, where I lived for 30 years. And so the program here is really what, what drew you? Yeah, awesome. um, they rolled out the money, so. Rolled out the money. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's important. That's one of the big We're reasons, in academia yeah. for the money. Um, oh, yeah, I study Japanese literature for the money, exactly. Right. Um, so what's the Russia connection there? Well, I kind of fell into it. Um, for my master's thesis, I translated a Japanese novel called 6,000 Trigi Love by a female writer called Kashimatamaki. Um, originally, I was looking for a text where I could analyze suicide and trauma, and her work fit the bill, but it ended up that she was a member of the Russian Orthodox Church and very interested in Russian literature, and in her works, she draws heavily upon um, Russian writers, especially Dostoevsky. So I ended up looking more into that, and when I came to study here, I had the opportunity to study Russian, so I kind of jumped much deeper into the relationship between Um, Russian literature and Japanese literature. Like you said, you went to a place in Russia that is typically not people's first destination within Russia. Typically they hit up Petersburg or like I feel like Moscow and Kazan maybe. But what was it like going to... Irkutsk, like, did you have any preconceived notions or about Russia in general, maybe Irkutsk specifically? I would, I would say, you know, the imagery of Siberia in right. the Russian mind is kind of gulags and hard labor and kind of nothing there and cold. Um, but when you get there, it's actually a very bustling city. Right. Um, it's expanding very fast. It has more than a million residents. Um, you see cranes everywhere, kind of like here in Austin. Um, new buildings are just popping up overnight it seems like so you expect it to be kind of just some village in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do but um there's it's just it's growing like crazy there's tons of restaurants there's a nightlife it's a very lively city it's ex- not what i was expecting when heading to siberia 
but I, I assume you were very like happily surprised. Oh yes, right? of course. Yeah, yeah I okay. wasn't. I didn't want to go to a gulag. No. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, I, I I second that desire to not to not go to a gulag. But um, maybe for a week, just experience it. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if I could last a day. But um, could you? What are your three biggest takeaways from this trip? It doesn't have to be super profound, but it can be. Sure. Um, as someone who studies Asia and um, Russia now, I was very surprised at the degree of integration between China and mm. Russia in the Far East and in Siberia. Um, it seems like there was more Chinese signs in restaurants in the, than English signs. Huh. We were there during a kind of a rally where they were people were driving from Moscow to, or from Beijing to Moscow, and they had you know delegates from China and Putin came. Did not get to see Putin, unfortunately. You did not meet Putin. I did not wow. get to meet Putin. Unfortunately. <laughs> I would have loved to have meet Putin, but unfortunately not. And just there's just an incredible amount of um, Chinese tourists, which hmm. kind of seemed to be rubbing the the locals a little bit. But um, just a huge influx of tourists into your city. Rubbing kinda. the locals a little bit in like there's um, this tension there. There was ten it seemed like there was lots of tension between the um, locals and the um, just huge packs of um, Chinese tourists. Right, because there because there's not only like money to be made for China in the sense of like tourism there, but also in the sense of like natural resources. And because I know that there's like lots of... I mean, I'm sure all the business owners are very, very, very happy in the restaurant. Right. Very, very happy to have this huge influx of people willing to spend money. Right. Um, but it's just the fact that you're clogging up the infrastructure. And, you know, when you go to tourist spots, say around like Baikal, um, there's a few, now there's just massive packs of um, tourists everywhere and that kind of Right. Rubs people, I think. Well, and you guys helped build the the path for them, so yeah, we part of the problem. Maybe no, maybe fifteen, <laughs> maybe ten meters or so. Yeah, um, we had some weak people in our group, so we didn't get as much as some of the other groups. Yeah. Some groups did more than ten and fifteen yeah. meters. Wow, that's that's more, pretty more sturdy impressive. people than apparently people from Texas and stuff. I guess. I feel like Texans are pretty sturdy. You would think. You would maybe, th right. maybe Austin's different. You know. Hmm. The exception and not the rule, <laughs> right? One last question to wrap it up. Would you recommend um, that people do do a program like the one that you did or um, go somewhere different in, in Russia, somewhere kind of? Just on a larger scale, I would say everyone should take the opportunity to study abroad or travel abroad. Right. Um, it really will open your mind. Just experience a different culture and um, put yourself in a different environment than you're used to and kind of force yourself to um, think in different ways. Um, and kind of reflect upon what you're used to, and kind of what you take for norms. Right. Um, if you study languages, um, obviously, you should take the opportunity to um, study abroad. Um, just being immersed in the language and being forced to use the language to, you know, order a Burger King even um, can really um, have a positive effect on your um, language development. It's a little different interacting with students outside of classroom and in study abroad settings. You get to know them on a very different level, which is uh, very satisfying to me personally. Also, for, st for students, I think it's a different experience. Here, they're independent. Uh, they live by themselves. They manage their time um, on their own. But then once you go on a group trip like that, you all of a sudden find yourself as a part of the group. Yeah. And you have to do a lot of things as a group. Mm -hmm. You know, So it's a very tight-knit community very uh, that you, you, you become a part of and sometimes it might be challenging sometimes it might be uh, sometimes people want to have space yeah <laughs> uh, which is uh, I think is understandable um, but I think 
preparing yourselves for you know being a part of the cohort and is one other aspect that I would um, highlight in this uh, upcoming experience for whoever decides to uh, go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thrusting people who potentially have never been abroad before to all experience it together, there's no way you can help bonds being formed and a connection being formed. I, I've definitely had that as well when I studied abroad in Japan. Like, we still all talk and occasionally be like, do you remember right. that time we first experienced that for the first time? It's like it's something you can't really share with anyone else. And you get that thing where you come back and you all you can talk about is your study abroad experience to the point that everyone else is sick and tired of hearing about it. Right. But hopefully that happens. Like, hopefully, you know, they spread the word. Because, yeah, like, like by call, like, not a lot of people go there. And to have this sort of grassroots level of interaction where they go and then they take it and they bring it back and they share it with their family members and inspire other people to go. Uh, there, there's a lot of layers to this of just how much comes out of one trip. And I, I wish I could sort of portray this rich experience uh, richer, but I, it's really hard to convey with words. Um, you have to go there. <laughs> I know, right? You have That's to live it. <laughs> yeah, it's like you can't, you, you can read all of this on paper, but it's not until you actually go and you see it and you experience it that it's it really hits home uh, one other opportunity that is is great that people love is when we go to uh, one of the bio stations on the mm -hmm. um, on the lake and it's in a semi-remote area you can only get there by hydrofoil or walking on a trail for about five hours wow. so um, it's a small village there are a lot of tourists coming through because the the, the trail the uh, great Baikal trail is there uh, but at the same time, at that bio station, biology students, um, they do their field studies for a month or I think month and a half in the mm -hmm. summer. Um, and so this summer I got to experience a, a small part of it where um, they had a lecture and then they dissect uh, various creatures like mice and insects and fish. I think talking to them in between those lectures and um, they're cooking their own dinner. Mm -hmm. They're sort of taking care of the entire space. It was very interesting. I thought our students would um, greatly benefit from such an opportunity, you know, and just seeing how Russian youth not only interacts, but goes about their life. like one of the best opportunities to sort of exchange culture is with people your own age. Um, so do they have any other opportunities barring those, you know, the peer, um, peer tutors. tutors? Yeah, peer tutors. So there's, uh, at the Irkutsk State University, there's so-called uh, Pravkom, which is what, a labor union? Pravkom, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a, the youth, the students manage it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of um, active activists who sort of, um, and so I talked to them this year and I said, well, did you know about this group that is come that comes here every year and said, oh, we would like to get together. So I'm sure, you know, if people would be asking for more opportunities, it is possible mm -hmm. to find it. Um, our partners there are very flexible with us and, uh, you know, are eager to help in any way. However, I do want to say that outside of the trips, we, we will be doing academic work. So it's a course, it's an upper division course, which requires reading thinking, talking about it, and being present at lectures. So we will have a number of guest lecturers mm -hmm. uh, who are Irkutsk State professors. 
Sometimes it is challenging for people to get through the lecture over there. It's a very different academic culture. Sure. While over here we, you know, we treat students and we, a, a huge emphasis is put on uh, studying is, has to be interesting. It should be entertaining, you know, and professors, as, as you all know, use a lot of jokes and involve students in yeah. different ways. Uh, over there is slightly different and there's slightly more distance between professors and students. But at the same time, we have our discussion sessions and I will be managing all the logistics of the course. So hopefully it's going to be you know, a good experience. Yeah. So so even in, in the lectures themselves, there's a little bit of culture shock of like, oh, Absolutely. this is very yeah. different. Yeah. I, I'm assuming all the lectures are in English? They are. Okay. They are either in English or uh, there will be a translator who will be helping with that. Sometimes we'll be doing, we are going to a botanical garden, which is in Irkutsk, and there we plan to do a lecture on Buryat culture, mm -hmm. and this would be sort of a lecture on site, you know, mm -hmm. not necessarily in a classroom, but there we'll be using a translator. So there's like a variety of topics, really, it seems like they're covering while they're there, so they're getting just a maximum, like a very condensed, but... Uh, dense version of, of Siberia and Russian culture and just the whole spectrum of, of things that they yeah, take away from uh, it. Yeah, we were, uh, I mean, I was thinking about the syllabus and was trying to make it, you know, as uh, wide as possible so that it could appeal to sustainability, so pe to people in sustainability studies and uh, geography and history um, and um, international relations. And so we will be looking at some comparative aspects between Russia and the U.S., how we manage resources, how we work towards... Um, or don't work towards sustainability, how mm -hmm. we think about oil and gas. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there will be topics like uh, the conquest of Siberia, right? So we'll go into geography mm -hmm. quite a bit, especially in the beginning, to make sure everyone knows where we are, yeah. <laughs> um, and also why it is why Siberia is such a such an important part of Russia in terms of resources, and yeah, also. We will be talking about the climate change and how oh, the yeah. uh, climate change is affecting the landscape mm -hmm. of indigenous uh, communities of the Arctic. This is unfortunate, uh, but I think if we're talking about the Soviet period, um, oftentimes the word ecocide mm -hmm. is applied to uh, the way nature was managed right. at that time. Uh, but one, one thing, I guess, to understand about the management of nature in the Soviet Union is that everyone was working under the Enlightenment ideas that that nature should be managed, it should be taken advantage of, and it it you know it's not going to fire back. Yeah. However, there were there were other um, there were ideas. Some Russian intelligent intelligentsia um, tried they tried to um, oppose this way of uh, treating environment, but their voice was was too. Um, not, not heard, I guess, yeah. because the state was the, uh, it was up to the state, mm -hmm. right? But everyone participated in it, of course. So we'll be looking at that interesting. Um, also, I guess Siberia has one of the major rivers mm -hmm. um, in the world, too. And there were Irkutsk, actually, <laughs> the interesting fact about Irkutsk is it, it is the capital of Bitcoin uh, in the world because they've got the cheapest electricity in the world. That makes sense. Thanks to their hydroelectric dams. Mm. So <laughs> they, they take pride in it on the one hand. Um, and they said, we have, we have the cheapest electricity. 
And Bitcoin. And Bitcoin, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hello, Slavic listeners. This is Katya, and today I am joined by Hannah Hospital. Hannah Hospital. Hannah Hospital. There we go. Hannah, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what year you are, what yes, you study? Yeah, sure. Yeah, currently I'm a fourth year student, um, math major with a minor in Russian language. So why the interest in Russian? Well, my dad's Russian. Yeah, my dad's side of the family, and um, his family is from Uzbekistan, but I have some family all over Russia. So I just kind of wanted to see, I mean, I haven't been since I was a baby, and the language he taught me a good bit, but there's a lot that I didn't know, so I want to kind of strengthen that. Right, I feel like that's kind of typical with a lot of heritage speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel it's kind of pulled back towards the motherland. Yeah, exactly. Um, for cultural reasons and linguistic reasons, um, but why did you decide to go on the, the South... Uh, Southwest Siberia by Southwest mm-hmm. 2019 trip. Yeah. Well, I chose that because first of all, I heard that most people in Siberia don't speak English. I just I didn't want because I know that in St. Petersburg and Moscow, a lot of people like, they're going to hear my voice, they're going to know that I'm American, and they're going to want to practice their English. And I just didn't really want that. I kind of wanted to be like completely speaking Russian. Also, I really wanted to see Lake Baikal because I heard that it was really mystifying and beautiful. And yeah, I don't know, it'd be hard to go to Baikal if I was in St. Petersburg or one of the other big cities. Right. So did, did Lake Baikal live up to your expectations? It actually did. Yeah. Yeah. It is beautiful. It's huge. I mean, it occupies 20% of all of the fresh water in the entire world. Like this, this is a huge lake. Like there's no body of lake, like body of water like that. And it's just so clear. Like I, we went on a camping trip and I took a mug. Um, my, like my Russian tour guide told me that I could just take my mug and like directly fill it up and you could drink it. And it was like the cleanest, most delicious tasting water that I've ever had. Oh, it was wow. just so cold and crisp. And yeah, it was beautiful. Well, so you mentioned going on a camping trip. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about like how the program was structured? Yeah, um, sure. And like what you got out of uh, out of that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, the American students, like the American group, they brought us, there's this group called the, I think it's called like, the Great Lake Baikal Trail. And what their, their main goal is to kind of get people to kind of build a trail so that Lake Baikal is more accessible to a lot of people, like older people, because there's lots of older tourists that come to Lake Baikal, like a lot of Chinese tourists, people that are already retired, that want to kind of check it out. But I mean, these hills, these mountains are kind of scary to climb and um, you can't really do it without like a paved trail. So we kind of, we went there to pave the trail and kind of build it. Yeah, while we were there, we just, like, we had some Russian people like cook us borscht and pozi, which is like this Mongolian bureti, like dumpling. D- dumpling. Yeah. yeah, a lot more bread than meat, but it's really delicious. I really, I'm a fan of those. Um, so I think that like if if you're not going for Lake Baikal, you should at least go for Bootsy. <laughs> at least go for the Bootsy. Uh, um, can you tell us a little bit more? I mean, I'm assuming you've, have you been to St. Petersburg or Moscow? Yeah, I went to St. Petersburg at the end to right. visit my uncle. So, and you mentioned this earlier, you specifically wanted to go to Siberia so that you wouldn't, wouldn't like, you know, fall back on your English or anything so yeah. that you'd get that real experience. But can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your biggest takeaways and the difference between St. Petersburg and Siberia? I mean, yeah. I know there are a lot of differences that are pretty obvious, yeah. but like, what did you experience? I noticed in Siberia, like when we were staying in Irkutsk, like the people there seem a little bit warmer. Mm. Like a lot. I, I mean, for, like at first glance, like they look harsh as heck, like freaking scary. I mean, you, you got to kind of look like that like, when you live in <laughs> Siberia, <yeah>. right? <laughs> They look scary, but like I got to know some of them. Like those are some of the best friends. Like I made better friends there. Like in two months, three months of staying there, like some of my my best friends in life, just there because I, I don't know. I think the way that they look at life, like I just I connect really well with the people there, and 
they're just, I don't know, they, they want to know more about like your culture, they want to learn more about America. And, no, they're, they're also super giving, super hospitable. And I, in St. Petersburg, I mean, I didn't, I only spent about a week there, and I mostly just stayed with my uncle and cousin because I really wanted to get to know them better. But just, I guess, from the people that I met from there, like, they're not quite as well. I don't want to say that say, people from St. Petersburg aren't welcoming, but I felt like kind of people in Irkutsk might be more down to earth, like, more ready to, like, make, right. you know, connections with people. And, and I mean, and I've, I've been to both, and I know that, mm-hmm. like, St. Petersburg definitely has that kind of, like, European big city yes. vibe to Super. it, in which people, I think, are a little less open sometimes. Yeah. And here, I'm generalizing, of course, um... Oh yeah, my dad is also from Siberia. So oh, when you cool. when you're like, oh, Siberians are like got that what we have here in the states like southern hospitality. Yeah. They got Siberian hospitality. I'm like, yeah, they really got do. That right, they really do. So overall, like a really great trip. Yeah, Super great. I want to go back. You want to go back? I'm ready okay. to go back. Like next summer, I want to go. <laughs> so has this like is this in, in any way shaping like what you aspire to do with the yeah. rest of your life? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have my math. Oh, I'm hoping to get my math degree. Hopefully that'll be done soon. But um, I honestly think like after this, like and after being able to speak Russian all day, like I think I want to like kind of make the focus of like what I do in life around Russian, around linguistics. Um, yeah, like I mean after after college, I know that there's some program. I think it's either in Germany or Poland. You earn this like degree, like this one month degree, to, like learn how to teach English, and then you can go teach English around Russia. Oh wow, yeah. And I, I honestly think I want to take a break and do that and see how that kind of leads the rest of my go life. Go back to Lake Baikal. Yeah. Well, uh, one one more question. So. How have you kind of adjusted? I mean, you already have kind of a you have a knowledge of Russian already mm-hmm. before you went to Buryatia. Um, but how have you adjusted to like taking language classes back here in in the American setting yeah. that as opposed to like full blown immersion? It's a lot easier. Yeah. Now, like, I mean, listen, I mean, you know, because we're taking the Chekhov class, like, right. it's still it's still <laughs> hard and dissecting like you know <laughs> literature, literature, right? <laughs> like, oh, like that's old Russian language. That's a lot harder. But I, I feel like I'm more relaxed now, and I'm a lot more comfortable. Like I have faith in myself right. to speak right and like to speak to strangers. Because I mean, before I only spoke to my family. Like you know, like your family has a specific set of vocabulary, like words they don't really go out of the vocabulary. But speaking with strangers was like the hardest thing for me. Actually, yesterday, like I was riding my bike and I met some <laughs> some person started talking to me, and it turns out he's actually from Ukraine, but he's, his parents are Russian. He speaks uh-huh. Russian. I just spoke Russian on the way. Home. Awesome! Yeah. <laughs> like, so easy. Like I just thought that it's so easy, but I mean, it's I'm a lot more comfortable and I'm like more open and willing to do it. I agree, and I'm definitely of the camp. Like, just speak. speak. If you make mistakes, like people it will correct matter. you, but they'll also understand. Yeah. Like the the fact that you're trying will win you so many mm-hmm. brownie points. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, like no. Learn your grammar, kids. But, yeah, learn your grammar, but, but, but still. They're just happy to be speaking to someone who wants to practice. Yeah, absolutely. So overall, would you recommend going on one of these May Mester type yes. trips? Yeah. Yes. Do stress. Do go to Russia. I mean, practice language. You want to get better at Russian? Go there. I mean, hang out with your American friends there, sure. But meet new Russian people, you know. Right. Get on meetup apps. Like, you know, do it in a safe way. Absolutely. But like, you can make such good friends there. You can get such good practice. And you can literally improve your Russian like tenfold. Speaking from my own experience, um, studying abroad, I know a lot of people tend to just stick with their cohort. Don't do it. And they only speak in English. Only speak English. And I'm like, you are in a country that has so many resources, so many people that you could use as resources to practice. I know. It's it's kind of frustrating. Um, But I understand, though, that, you know, it's a whole different country. Perhaps you've never been there before. Mm -hmm. It's kind of scary. Yeah. I mean, Um, I understand, like, an adjusting people, but you got to just throw yourself out there. You just got to, like, you know, Go on, you know, like on Tinder. Like, I mean, just be very specific. You just want to practice Russian. Like, go on one of these meetup apps. 
right. in a public place, like <laughs> meet people. You hear that, everyone? With. Use Tinder to meet people to practice ration with. Do it. Um, wait, another question that came to mind. Did you swim in Lake Baikal? I did. Yeah? Yeah. And I got was, in, like I stayed there for a minute, and I'm like, I think I'm good. It was freezing. <laughs> yeah. Freezing. But you did it. Yeah, so I did. now you I can yeah. you can you can go around saying, "Hey guys, I've, I've swam in Lake Baikal." Swam in Lake Baikal. It's nothing compared to Barton Springs. Nothing. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, we have a lot of Texas listeners here, Austin <laughs> listeners. So I think that's gonna be those are fighting words. <laughs> So really just so interdisciplinary, like every single discipline I think you can think of almost, like you touch on it and, and there's something to be gained from it. What, for you, what is kind of the crown jewel, the, the your favorite, the most important thing for you out of this program, you think? For me, I think the impact that this program could have on um, young people, mm -hmm. uh, I think there are many there are different sides to it you can you can look at it from different perspective like educationally they're going to bring back a huge piece of knowledge that they wouldn't gain otherwise because yeah. um, i think you know something needs to be said about experiential learning mm -hmm. which adds such a huge component to the in-class learning uh, when you discuss it in class and then you go look at it touch it and you know there you are there it's a it's a lot more it's a richer um, academic experience that's one then I think people are going like in terms of personal development I think uh, many people before reported then when they come back from their study abroad they're they feel more mature they're mm -hmm. more confident in their career goals they, they know what they want to do you have to go through all those bumps and roadblocks you're just you know you're a lot more self-aware you're a lot more self-aware and uh, mature overall mm -hmm. and also I think it it's it, a lot of teamwork or skills that you know em employers today are putting a huge emphasis on like team players we were looking for you know individuals who are able to collaborate I think that part of it is also covered but also if you look at the so we talked about educational advantages personal advantages and then, of course, just, you know, the more you know, the richer your lens becomes. Yeah. And I think that's a huge advantage. It, it sounds, honestly, like like a perfect program, I think, for people who've never studied abroad and want to get something out of it that's not just language, that's not just one or the other. It's, it's a, a whole lot of everything all at once. I am very excited about the fact that UT uh, chooses to... Um, make it and um, you know to give the safety shield to mm -hmm. this program no wait th there's another way to put it uh, i mean you're right though like with with this kind of program it it hand holding is i think the phrase that is used a lot like you're not left just completely out in the open like it's it's structured there's a syllabus there's a program to it um, which, again, for first-time people, especially their first time abroad, it's so vital to not have to go through that alone with, with nothing to hold on to, like you exactly. have that support yeah. system yeah. that'll maybe inspire them to go back later or go somewhere else later. It's like, well, if I can do that in, in Siberia, like, I can go anywhere, you know? Exactly, and there are actually people who I know from uh, previous years who went um, to Irkutsk before, and then they, at the end of their experience, they're like, I absolutely, I am going back. Um, to study Russian in some other 
uh, place in Russia or even uh, post-Soviet country, like somebody went to Ukraine, and they said, I had a great time, you know, and that was a good foundation for my experiences. So, yeah, I guess the hand-holding. We, we, do, we do a lot of hand-holding, and uh, it's, I think it helps people to feel a lot more at home while away from home. So that, you know, there's a uh, the zone of proximal development. Like, there's a comfort zone, and then leaving the comfort zone, mm-hmm. but then there's always the comfort zone while there to come back to, which I think helps people to... Um, manage their experiences there successfully. Yeah, I mean, I, if I went on this program, going out of my comfort zone would be sleeping in a tent and, and creating a trail. Uh, that would be right. <laughs> taking me out of that. But no, that that's great. Again, it's just like you can go out into nature, back into the city. A, a little bit of like finding that place where you feel comfortable is, is excellent. Yeah, and just to say that there aren't any um, challenging hikes or anything super challenging in terms of um, outdoor experiences. Uh, so people who are not very well versed into hiking or um, camping uh, don't need to be scared as long as they bring their like some some hiking shoes that have a good sole on them yeah, sensible <laughs> uh, shoes yeah um, <laughs> that will work and of course in the in the spring we will be doing um, LA 119 which is a course prep uh, which is a one hour a week meetings uh, where we will be just prepping for the trip essentially should we cover some logistics? When when is this uh, program taking place? When are applications due? What do students need? Great, yeah, absolutely. So applications are due November 15th. Um, the link to the application can be found on our, on our website. Mm-hmm. If uh, you, Everyone gets their own tickets. And so the idea is that everyone lives Austin or wherever they live on mm-hmm. uh, May 28th. Uh, we meet in Moscow. We spend a day in Moscow going around um, and doing some sightseeing. And then um, we fly out to Irkutsk the next day, and it's a red eye. There's a, you know, <laughs> there's a, there are 11 time zones in Russia. 11 or 13? Oh my God, I think 13. 13, okay. Uh, so, <laughs> as you know, there are 13 time zones in uh, Russia. So between Moscow and Irkutsk, it's a five hour difference. So the flights are um, usually happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> we got fact checked. <laughs> Thank you. So there are 11 time zones in Russia, and there's a five-hour difference between Moscow and uh, Irkutsk in terms of time. We leave Moscow at night, and we arrive to Irkutsk in the, in the early morning. Um, and then we will be there for the entire five weeks. You know, five, we're, we, are, I think, are one of the longest main masters at UT. Mm-hmm. Because usually it's like four weeks, and we do five weeks right there. I mean, when they're flying in, overnight, they're, they're jet-lagged anyway. That's fine. Just sleep on the plane. Well, I have to say one thing is that uh, funding is available for the program. Uh, the uh, This year, we were lucky to get $10,000 um, in scholarship for students. So whoever's applying should apply for that scholarship. And all, all the links are also on the website. And, you know, it's possible to sort of dip into different parts of scholarships and, you know, decrease the 
uh, cost by a significant amount. And of course, FLAS is available. However, FLAS uh, only for the students who are choosing to stay on and continue the program mm -hmm. and do additional language training. So really what you're telling me is that there's no excuse not to go there. You can get it paid for, you know, you get this enriching experience. It happens over the summer, so you, it's not interrupting any class time. Yes, exactly, exactly. And you will be back before uh, the end of the first summer session. So you are in good shape to take classes in the second summer session if you choose to do so. Also, the nice part about being in Irkutsk is that summers there are... Well, they're not Austin. The summers Austin there, summer. the, the temperature in the summer is 65, 75. And it, you know, sometimes it rains, but uh, not as often. Mm -hmm. And it's a very pleasant uh, weather to be around. Yeah, that, that's perfect weather. Again, compared to Austin, that's fantastic weather. I, I have to say, um, the, the first year I overpacked warm clothes because Siberia, permanent per, permafrost, <laughs> you right? Think. And the, uh, I, I took my puffer, uh, the down jacket, and then this and that, and I, you know, it was sh shorts weather. It was mm. like. Well, Dr. Wilkins, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Congratulations on your very first podcast episode recorded in the books. Thank you. Uh, we hope to have you back soon, and we hope you have an excellent Maymaster next year. Thank you all for inviting me and uh, letting me talk a little bit about this. I hope we will be reporting back to you all next, after coming back from that trip. Yes, please do. I want to I hear how much more of the trail that you made next year. Yeah. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you. you. <laughs>